If you turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4, we have been uh, preaching through Ephesians, the book of Ephesians, the letter to the Ephesian Christians. And uh, it has been a, a rich time. And in chapter 4, we said that there was a pivot. Remember that the first three chapters kind of established the, the wealth of uh, the eternal plan of redemption of God. It began with this amazing song in chapter 1 of how God has prepared salvation for all, all of his elect, right? From the beginning of the beginning of everything, before time began, before the earth was made, before the heavens were in their place, this was God's program. And chapter 2 reminded us of what it meant that we are sinners, that we are beyond salvation, that there's nothing natural that could have helped right, or even influenced God towards desiring to rescue us. And in his sovereign nature, in his om, uh, omniscience, he already knew the depth of our sinfulness. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, and nevertheless, he has sent Christ to rescue us. As a result of that, there's an emphasis on the work of Jesus Christ, on his grace on our behalf, and how none of it is because of anything that we deserved or earned or because of our worthiness, but it's all because of the work of God. And as we kind of work through this new humanity then, right, you take, you take an individual redeemed soul and you combine him into the family that is the body of Christ and you have then this interrelational dependence upon one another and upon the Lord to represent the things of the Lord here on earth. And so by the time we get to chapter 4, this transition of all the applications of all that rich theology that we have been saved by a sovereign God who goes beyond time, has planned this from time immemorial to rescue your souls. Then starting in chapter 4, it's like, okay, so then this is what that looks like. It looks like one new humanity. It looks like every child of God, given different mixtures of gifts and giftedness, personalities and uniqueness, and none of them with all of the powers, right, so that they become interdependent. We, we are meant to work as a corporate body, as a family, as a unit, as a body. And all of this by God's sovereign design. And so in the midst of this, as we discuss the, the unity of the body of Christ, we come to this interesting passage about what it means to put on this new life, this new humanity, how, how it is that we pursue the things of Christ in a way that is, is like new life, that demonstrates that our salvation is not just genuine, but is transform, transformative and new. He uses the term new man or new humanity. We are not supposed to be the same thing as everybody else. We need to be brand new. And this is that passage that kind of transitions us to think about what it means to put on what is absolutely new in Jesus Christ. The passage speaks to how to put on the new life. And just to kind of give you an idea of where we're going, there's a, oh, we've got to turn it on. All these electronic things, you've got to turn them on these days. You put on the new life, and I think there's only two major sections here, um, and don't, th don't let that kind of uh, lull you into thinking that it is a simple kind of thing. It, the task of understanding this is, is, uh, is, is uh, there's a wealth of, 
of wondrous things that I think are given to us in this passage that our time will not give us. I, as I look through uh, Ephesians 4, 17 to 24, I imagine that you could do a whole sermon series, like four messages, six messages, because it's just so rich. But I think the two major sections we're looking at, right, is about how to put off some of the old nature, right? Don't think and live as pagans. And then the second part in verses 20 through 24 is how to put on kind of this new life in Christ, how to think and live like Christians. And I'm using those, those terms, think and live, because I think the passage will unpack for us that this is what is central to our sanctification. It is possible that you have been a Christian a long time. And that over the course of the, maybe the last several years or maybe many years, you have found yourself kind of in neutral. Not really growing, right? not, not falling back, just kind of there. And I think what, what we might look for in those occasions where we feel a little bit distant from the Lord or that we are not growing more in our personal sanctification in closeness to, to, to God and his holy nature, right? what we tend to look for is experience. What does it feel like for me? How, how do I feel more like God is closer and we are mistaken. Because while emotions are significant, important, in fact, they are quite powerful to motivate us, they are the back end of the train. It is how we think that determines what we do and that results in certain emotions. We, we often look for the experience, right, for the worship, for the enjoyment, right, for the celebration. We look for that as if that would refresh us. And perhaps it does for a moment. But it's in the battle for the thoughts of our heart that we put on or we do not put on this new life in Christ. I mean, I've already given you a preview of where we're going. There's a lot to be said there. But let me read you this passage and then let us uh, unpack it together this morning. Ephesians chapter 4, starting verse 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we look to this rich passage, we ask that your spirit would open the word of God to us this morning. And that as we consider these things, Lord, um, we consider our thought life. We consider our own sanctification. We consider the depth of our commitment and our desires and our motivation to serve Christ and to make him central. Lord, would you convict us in areas that we fall short? Would you challenge us in the ways that we think wrongly? Would you, would you rebuke us, Lord, um, for every action or word that we have um, 
that, that has flowed from our hands or our mouths in ways that dishonor you. Remind us that we need to walk in a manner that's worthy of our Savior because, uh, not because of some obligation to be a certain kind of people, but the obligation of love because you are worthy. And so help us to live in a manner or to desire to live in a manner that's worthy of your gospel, of your Son, of the Savior Jesus Christ. We praise you for all that we have in him, even as we prepare our hearts for the Lord's table. Lord, give us the scriptures this morning and a refreshment of our souls so that we might think your thoughts after you and might worship our Savior in a way that honors you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So it's about thinking and living. And even as we read that passage, did you catch all those words that were all around the idea of our minds, right? The futility of minds, darkened understanding. Um, It goes on to talk about the hardness of heart. And we know the heart is where all of those things, our minds, our our actions, um, all of those uh, motivations, they all flow out of that. And then it speaks about learning Christ, hearing about him, being taught in him, that the truth is in him. See, there, there's so much to be said about how we think that I, I think if you look at this passage, we should rightly understand that sanctification, growing in maturity in Christ, flows from the head out. Or I think if we use the biblical language, it flows from the heart out, right? Because a lot of times the heart is what we mean by that space between our ears. In the scriptures, the heart is where you think, where you formulate not just you know, your, your concepts, right? The details or the facts or the list or the outlines. It's where you meditate on them so that they become your motivations, right? So, so then the emotions are always attached to the back end of that. What is it that I want? It's, well, what have you been thinking about? What am I motivated to accomplish in this life? Well, what is it that your mind naturally gravitates to when you are alone and you think about the future? Why is it that I struggle with this sin? Well, how much of this sin, in terms of the battle of your thoughts, in terms of the battle of your your heart, do you kind of cultivate it carefully, maybe quietly, but distantly, as if no one else might know? You hear what I'm saying, that it is an issue of of thinking, so that I think it is not an overstatement to say that how you are thinking is the greatest indication of where you will spend eternity. How you are thinking determines who and what you live for. It determines who and or, or what and, and why you believe the things that you believe, and you might verbally assent to all sorts of excellent righteous statements and doctrinal truth, and all the while be unintentionally harboring thoughts, desires, intentions that are carefully cultivated, right, in the secrecy of our own thought life. I don't know when the last time someone said, hey, how's your thought life? But that would be an excellent question for us in terms of our accountability and our care for one another, especially the care for our souls, right? What what are we thinking about when our minds have time to take a break? What are we wishing, what are we hoping was different, right? And why do we wish that? It, It is about our thinking that leads to living, right? That is the ultimate determination of what it means that we might be mature complete, growing in the things of the Lord, so that, and remember the context, so that we might be useful 
to the kingdom in the body of Christ and in the gospel witness to the world. Right? Begin there. Begin here or here, right? And let everything else flow out. I think that's the point of Ephesians 4, 17 to 24. But let's begin with the first part. And the first half, verses 17 to 19, is really about not living, not walking as the Gentiles walk, right? Let me read you all three of those verses first. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. Actually, let's just stop there, right? That's helpful. Right? Let's talk about how the Gentiles walk. And let, let me say a couple of words that won't be reflected in the outline well. So I just want to make sure that we cover them first. And that's the first part of verse 17. It gives us a couple of things that we should notice right away. One is the authoritative nature of what Paul is trying to address to these Christians and to us. He says, now this I say and testify in the Lord. Now, if you've been following along, we're reading a book of Scripture. Right? We're reading a letter to the Ephesian Christians, a letter that has been inspired by the Holy Spirit, and so it comes to us as the Word of God. It, it seems somewhat redundant that he needs to say, I am saying and I am testifying, I'm bearing witness in the Lord concerning these things, unless he is doing that to place double emphasis on how important this is. Right, this is the apostle, and I didn't think that somehow at this point in the epistle, the apostle stopped writing. This is Holy Scripture, and I didn't think that at some point, Holy Scripture stopped being holy, or that someone put in the rest of this, this letter, right, in just their human opinions. But Paul seems to feel like he needs to lean into his apostolic authority as a vessel, a mouthpiece of God, to say, now listen, I am speaking this, And I'm bearing witness in the Lord. In other words, this is what the Lord would have me to tell you. This is so significant that I need you to understand that even though you already understand that none of this is just an issue of my own opinion, this, of all the things that I've spoken, need to be emphasized, comes with apostolic authority, right? And I speak on behalf of the Lord towards you. And the statement is this, that you no longer walk as the Gentiles do. In fact, it says that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in our ESV translation. The, the term must is not, in, is not you know, literally in the Greek. The idea is that, uh, that at least the ESV is trying to convey the necessity of what is taking place here. That, that you shouldn't walk as the Gentiles, but there is a necessity upon us. And we talk about walk often, right? Especially in the book of Ephesians. It's come up in, in chapter 4, verse 1, that, uh, that we are to walk in a manner that's worthy of the calling with which we have been called. So walking, we have said, is a lifestyle. It's, it's, like, it's not just getting from A to B, but it's how you get from A to B. Right? If you guys do like Google Maps, I prefer Apple Maps, we can argue, right? But if you, if you put in, if you input, like you travel to a city and you input like where you're trying to get to, you could choose, see, so some of you guys might not know this, right? But you could choose, I want to walk there, I want to drive there, a little car symbol, or I'll take the train and public transportation there, right? You could choose the different manner of how you get from this point to that point. 
So that's how you should think about walk. It's about, it's about the manner of your living, or we might say your lifestyle. See, I'm trying not to use lifestyle because I think immediately, at least in our context of vernacular, when we say lifestyle, we mean like, you know, what's your house look like? You know, what's your crib like, right? Like, what's your lifestyle, right? We think in material terms, and that's not helpful to us. The idea is, what is your life like? What is your worldview, right? How are you walking from this point, from the point of your birth, right, to the point of your conversion, your salvation, to the point that the Lord brings you home? How? Manner, right? Not, not, not what, the genuine believer will get from conversion to being with the Lord. I'm convinced, right? Every genuine Christian will do that. But the manner in which they get from that point to eternity, that's what's included in the idea of walk. So he's saying that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. The no longer is included in the Greek. And I think that, that must strike a chord Right? And it should strike a chord with every Christian. That there was a time when you walked, you walked, you lived, your manner of life, your lifestyle was exactly right, like you would expect from any other Gentile. Gentile here is used for the first time in the book of Ephesians right, as a spiritual statement. And this is what I mean by that. Because before that, when it's talking about Jews and Gentiles becoming one new body, it's talking about ethnically, Gentile people, right? Like, in other words, the Jewish people and the non-Jewish people, the nations, that's what Gentile means, they have, regardless of their cultural background, regardless of their, their, you know, their spiritual heritage, they have now become one new humanity in Christ, right? So that's talking about an ethnic people group or all the people groups versus the Jewish people groups. Here, though, Gentiles use not so much about ethnicity, right, as people group, but it's used in the spiritual context of living of the cultural context of how they walk out their life. And so here, when it says that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, I think we're supposed to take the word Gentiles, and maybe for our vernacular, we might use the word pagan. That's why I put that in the outline, right? Because the concept is you shouldn't live like a worldling, like an unbeliever, like one that denies the salvation, the victory and the lordship of Jesus Christ. You should not live as the rest of the world. That's what that means. So, so you have the authority, I say, and testify in the Lord. You have right, the necessity that you must no longer walk, no longer walk as the pagans do. And then you have this interesting statement that sets its foundation, right? In other words, if you're curious, well, yeah, man, why do unbelievers walk a certain way? Why do believers walk a certain way? Why do... Why do the saved and the non-saved, why, why do they live in different... Well, it turns that the foundation is given to us in the final phrase of verse 17. In the futility of their minds. In the futility of their minds. This statement is so rich, because if you think about it, it's, it suggests that the wellspring, right? You know what a wellspring is? We sing that sometimes in our hymns. A wellspring is a source of where water flows out of. Right. And so if there is a bubbling kind of, you know, source, like, you know, if you dig a well, you hit water and then that water hopefully keeps on, you know, staying there so that you could keep drawing on that water. Well, that's a wellspring. Where does this all come from? Where does the water come from? Where does this uh, the, the you know, this lifestyle, the, the, the walk of the Gentiles, 
Where does that spring from? And it doesn't begin with their actions. It begins with their mind. Because the mind fuels attitudes, motivations, which ultimately become right the hands and the feet. Does it occur to you that you do not have the capacity to do something that you, you can't imagine? All right? You, you, do you understand what I'm saying? In other words, um, if you think, man, I'm going to do something really random, it'd be something physical. Like, you know, like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kick this stand, you know? I'm going to throw this pulpit, right? Like, like I can't imagine, I'm going to fly to the moon. The psh, right? Like, I can imagine that, right? But before anything becomes an action, it must be thought out in my mind. And so I need to build a rocket ship. I need to get fuel, whatever, right? I need to hitch a ride or sneak my way into it. You get what I'm saying? The point is that anything that we choose to do, we must be able to think it first. The, the thought goes before every action. So in those moments when we are so ticked off that we yell at somebody in frustration and anger, right? That didn't happen because of some some mechanism, physical mechanism that clicked. It's like, bink, okay, now I must tell you how terrible you are as a human being, right? What happens is that we've been thinking about this from the get-go. We, we don't start having bitterness towards human beings without us thinking about that first. We don't struggle, right? We don't, we don't fall into an adulterous relationship just out of the blue. That is cultivated almost carefully, Right? In our thinking, in our minds, it's our, you, if you're following what we're saying, the scriptures and the word of God seems to say that see, it, is, it is in the minds that the walk of the pagans, the unbelievers, their lifestyle flows out of what is in their thinking, what is in their souls, what is in their mind. This is the power of your thought life. And every unbeliever that you know, right, if they have not placed their faith in Christ and have redeemed the way that they think about their purpose and their meaning, their motivations, their thought lives are captive to fertility, to fertility. They walk in the futility of their minds. Futility is that word that means vanity, right? It's the word that would, uh, we often translate the Old Testament term for vanity. And so I immediately think of the book of Ecclesiastes and how everything is vain, and that means that it is empty, it is worthless, it is without ultimate value, right? Their thoughts, I like how, what one commentator, Lenski, says. He says, you think about like, like decent, right, religious or fairly moral unbelievers. Their thoughts aim to bring that person to the right goal, but this turns out to be vacuity, emptiness, delusion. Right? There, has to be, there has to be a truth at the center of their thinking. Otherwise, this is what you have. You have vanity of mind. You have futility of thinking. You have a vacuity, like meaning like this. There's an emptiness, a, a, a hollowness. And that the best that they could do is the best that they could do for the moment. For us as believers, the question to ask ourselves is how is our, our thought life? What is it that you prize? What is it that you wish for? What, what in your thought life gets you kind of ticked off? You know? What are you mulling over carefully and thoughtfully, whether in daydream or in, in ambition or in hope? 
We should ask ourselves or our thought life because this is the single greatest explanation, right, of where we are spiritually. Because it's not about what we do. It is about what we do. But the what we do is always fueled best by what we believe, what we think, what we know. And the pagan mind, he's saying you shouldn't walk as the pagans walk, right, in the futility of their minds. They walk in unbelief because they do live out their unbelief. They flourish in unbelief because that's, right, that's the emptiness of the things that they believe to be true and excellent and intentionally purposeful in their lives. Your flourishing as a Christian is entirely dependent on your state of thinking. That convicts me when I think about that, right? Our flourishing as Christians is entirely dependent upon our state of thinking. And they are not to be thinking the same way that the pagan does. Ambitious for the same things that the unbeliever is. Desiring the same life, lifestyle, and immediate satisfactions and consumptions as the pagans do. Hey, become a Christian means that all things are made new. What are those all things? Right? Is it, not, is it not like your career path, your retirement, how many kids you have? Aren't those new as well? Or are those kind of, are those kind of sacred cows that are separate from everything else that is on you? Because now I don't, cut, I don't cuss anymore, often, and I, I sing songs, right, about Jesus. Is that all we mean by all that is new? I spend a lot of my Sundays, instead of watching NFL football, like in church with other people. Is that all there is to all things new? Like, it comes from the mind. It comes from the soul. It comes from the inner being. And we feed, right, our souls by what we think. And we are not to walk, we're not to think and live as pagans in the futility of their kind of thinking, of their ambitions and hopes, their desires and disappointments, etc. We need to cultivate something better. It goes deeper, though. Verse 18 says, they are darkened in their understanding. See, see the repetitive nature of the idea of the thinking, right? They're darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of heart. If we work on this backwards, verse 18, it begins with the idea of where does this all come from? It comes from a hardness of heart. And because of that hardness of heart, that first phrase, they're darkened in their understanding. It's both darkened in their understanding and alienated from the life of God, present or perfect passive participles. All that is to say is that they have been and continue to be darkened and the darkness is, is come upon them. Right, that, that, that this is something that, that they have allowed to happen to themselves. They have been darkened in their understanding, in their ability to think. It's the word for, for thinking that is discursive reasoning. It's how you outline things, how you make formulate, how you formulate plans. It is their ability to formulate, right, to think about how things are. It's darkened. Listen, have you had that experience where you're trying to share the gospel or to try to explain why you're a Christian to someone that you care about, right? Because if it's a stranger, it's a little bit different. They might just shut you down. But it's someone that you care about that will listen to you. And they kind of appreciate it, but they just kind of don't get it as well. This, this is why. Because their understanding is darkened. The way that they process stuff, right, the processes themselves are darkened. 
They are secondly alienated from the life of God. Like they don't get that they don't get God. That doesn't matter to them. Your unbelieving coworkers, your unbelieving friends, maybe your relatives, as you talk to them, they might feel like, oh, that, that's good for you, right? That's not my thing. As if there's a life outside of a life giver. They have, right, a mortality that means that they are a ticking time bomb. They don't know when it'll go off, but they have a limited amount of time in this world, and then God's judgment will come. That's it. We have a limited amount of time in this world, and then the Lord will rescue us unto eternity. They they don't even realize that they are separated, alienated from the life of God, nor do they value the fact that they can have the life of God. And all of this because of the ignorance that is in them, their lack of understanding. See, so, so this is where verse 17 seems to indicate to us that this hardness of heart is, is the reason why they can't think their way out of a spiritual paper bag. They, they just don't get it. And it's because their hearts are hardened. The heart, again, is a, is a control center. Uh, of our human thinking, emotions, our actions, everything flows out of that. And the idea that it is hardened means that it is insensitive, dull, all right, filled with ignorance and unbelief, alienated and darkened. There's no hope there in the soul. And if there's no hope in the soul, right, the resulting actions would, would demonstrate that. There's no connection to the things of the life of God. So why would they live as if they were connected to the things of the life of God? Well, see, that, that's the Gentiles. And when I say amen and amen, I, I know people at all. They're, you know, they got issues. But I remind you that Paul's instruction here is not, hey, let me describe to you the map of the Gentile soul. He is doing that for a purpose. Because you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds, right? Anything antithetical to our Christian lives flows out of the things that we allow or ponder or meditate in our souls, in our minds. That's why Proverbs 4, 23, Proverbs 4 is that great proverb where it's like the the spiritual dad is just talking to his son. And in Proverbs 4, 23, it says, keep your heart, your heart, keep your heart. Um, Other translations, guard your heart. With all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. For from it flow out all the waters of the springs of your living. Your life is determined by what is, what is allowed into your heart, seems to be that proverb, right? And that matches what the scripture is saying here. God's word is telling us there's a futility of mind that is the captive right? nature of, of, of paganism, of unbelief. It flows out of... It flows out of a hardness of heart, and it is described as that which leads them to be given over to every sin. Look at verse 19. They have become callous, another term for insensitive, right? They are insensitive of heart, darkened, alienated, and now they are dead to any feeling. They are callous. They become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. I think, you know, just, just, you know, 
I'm guessing, but I imagine that your mind immediately goes with either some conviction or some concern to the word sensuality and then greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Like you're like, man, these guys aren't just bad. They're like bad and greedy to do that, right? They're greedy for badness. That's true. That's how deep and how dark that is. But I would rather have you focus on the verb that comes right before. They become callous and have given themselves up. Have given themselves up. It means to be handed over. And the idea is that the pagan mind, and again, can I remind you, this is you and I before Christ. This is maybe some of you in the room, right? The pagan mind is captive to the here and now. To, to, to the, my experience, my pleasure, my delights, but the things that would make me glad now. It is an idolatry of the self, and it is formulated by our thinking. It's fed by our imaginations, and we use our mind to fuel our souls to think that these are the things that I, I need to have to, to find pleasure and delight in this world. And they naturally, for the pagan mind, gravitate us towards sensuality and greediness, right, to practice every kind of impurity, like an over-the-top kind of thing. And it seems to suggest that, it, that, that there's a gradient that will take place, that you try this for now. You dabble in this for now. You think about these things, and you imagine what it'd be like if you did these things. And then you practice some. You go a little deeper, and you think about what you could do more because there could be more. And you go deeper. And then eventually, in this almost greed for self-satiation, like we are pursuing the things of pleasure in a way that we would look back and go, dude, what in the world has happened? Every serial killer, sorry to go all the way there, right? Every serial killer began as a baby. I love babies. I don't love serial killers, right? But I love babies. Every sinner is born as a cute little baby. Every wicked thing that is done in greediness, that is done to a point where you go, I can't believe a human being could do this. That human being was a small, delicate child, beautiful, probably, most likely, in someone's eyes. There needs to be a growth process, even towards the most wicked things. And the verb that I wanted to draw your attention to is that word given over. They've given themselves up. They've surrendered. They've removed every resistance along the way. You don't start, right, with absolute non-moral kind of, oh, I'm a baby. That baby just took my toy. I would kill that baby. Like, they don't, you, don't thought, you don't begin with those thought process. You, you, you get there. Right? By feeding the thinking that you want to give it. And you give yourself over. See, little by little, you think it, you give yourselves in. You think it, we give ourselves over. You think it, the next step, and you give yourself. It is a give, gradual giving over. That's the process. It is gradual, is the point. There's a giving over towards sin that marks the pagan mind. So the, I think the warning comes with not just don't walk like an unbelieving pagan, don't think and live that way, but don't allow yourself to gradually grow into that, to give yourself up little by little, because that's how they got there. This is the danger of our thought lives. And this is the necessity of reshaping it. Romans 12, 2. 
Do not be conformed, right? Pressed into the shape of this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Romans 12.2 is literally telling us, don't let the world conform your thinking, but instead refresh, renew, reboot your mind in ways that allow you to discern God's will constantly. His, his will for you is not, you know, roses. It's not, you know, pleasantness only. His ultimate will for you is to enjoy him forever. But in the here and now, it means that there may be tragedies, difficulties, hardships. Is it his will? Well, then ponder on these things, right? Recenter your thinking around these things so that you can discern what is the will of God? What is good and acceptable and perfect? Regardless of whether or not this is the way that I would want my life to go now. I think that's what Romans 12 2 is trying to tell us. To think and to live, not as pagans, but to refresh right, that hard drive so that we might think and live as believers. And that's the second part, verses 20 through 24. But that is not the way you learned Christ, right? If we were to think and we were to live in a distinctly Christian way, it begins with verse 20. That is not the way you learn Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. Truth is in Jesus. That's that final statement. But let me work us through verse 20 into that part of verse 21. Let me work us into that direction. It begins by saying that's not the way you learn Christ. I want to understand a couple of things, right? One... Did you catch that our conversion, right, our Christian identity, our salvation, is put in an expression that has everything to do with learning, with the exercise of our minds? It says, it says hey, don't walk as the pagans in the futility of their minds. They're darkened. They're alienated. They have given themselves over to greediness concerning their sin. That's the path of those that are without Christ. You have been saved, though. And it does say that, but it says it in a, in a particular way. It says, but that is not the way you learned Christ. You learned Christ. Salvation is described in terms of learning, of training, of thinking. Right? Colossians 2, 6 or 7, in a similar way, says, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught abounding in thanksgiving. Listen, the gospel message is taught, is learned. And I'm not, be careful, I'm not saying that you speak like certain verbal, you know, like certain verbal expressions and all of a sudden that magic power like a spell would transform. So that's not something I'm saying at all. I'm saying though that God has given us, right, a message that is to be explained. And so if you're trying to share the gospel with someone, it is, I think, appropriate to say that what you're trying to do is you're trying to teach them what the gospel means, that there is a God. He is our creator, and he is a loving God, but he's a just God. He has every right to destroy that which is in rebellion to us. Our problem is that we are sinners. It means that we are naturally rebels. We sin not because we're good people that occasionally do something bad. That may be somewhat true. 
But we sin because that is natural to us and no one can avoid sinning altogether. And so what do you do if you have a really just judge, right? And you have sinners. He has to judge. Otherwise, he's not just. Then he's just a wicked judge, like some of our wicked judges in the world. I'm not thinking of any particular. I'm, not, I'm just saying there, are, there probably are some, right? Like if he's really just, he can't let that sin go. But he's also loving God. Can he do something for that sinner? And he has. He has sent his son to become a human like us. Because like can rescue like. And in his death, he can die a death that we should die. But his death is undeserved. That would be almost unjust to kill a perfectly righteous man. But he dies taking my sins, taking your sins, so that it's as if my debt, my penalty, my crime has been canceled. And I'm free. I'm free of that obligation. But now in that freedom, what do I do? How do I live? What is my purpose? If it's just more sin, then I didn't really need Christ. I could have done this by myself. All right? But if there is a purpose, if there's meaning, if there's depth. See, it's a learning. The gospel message is a learning. And it says, you didn't learn Christ like this. You didn't learn Christ, right, in the depths of a darkened understanding, in futility of mind. You didn't learn Christ. In other words, whatever it is that is strange or thinking to think, I need this, I want this, this is what is truth in life, etc. Whatever that is, you have learned Christ and is the exact opposite of all of that pagan stuff, of all that unbelieving stuff. It is a think and live in such a way that expresses that Christ has made all the difference in our lives. Verse 21 says, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. Be careful, because I think that in our English, we read assuming that you have heard about him. And because we we don't really strongly distinguish between our, our different conditional phrases, it almost sounds like, man, I'm not so sure about you guys, right? Like, I think most of them, I don't know, you know, if it's true, if it's true, really true, that you are Christians. That's not what he's saying. The first class conditional suggests that Paul is saying, I'm very confident of this, but he wants to leave a little bit of leeway. He's saying, I am assuming, right? But you never know. There is some truth that you never know. But he is not doubting their salvation. He's saying, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, Notice that, that those two kind of statements kind of run together if you think about it. It gives us a, um, a, a pedagogy. I think I said that word right, right? It gives us a, a methodology of, of spiritual insight and education. He's saying first that you heard about him. There was an initial hearing about the things of Jesus, about the Christ, what he has done, the Son of God. He's come Right? He's come in the flesh to live a perfect life, to lay down his life, to pay for our sins, and he was raised. You've heard about him. And that hearing about him, if you take it in kind of the Jewish or Hebrew uh, context, the hearing implies that you did something with that. Right? In the Old Testament, right, the great Shema in Deuteronomy 6, hear, O Israel, the idea is not, hey, listen carefully. Did you listen? Oh, good. Now you're free to live whichever way you want. It's like here has an implication. And I think Paul is implying that. I think he's saying, assuming, because I think it's true, that you have heard about him. You were initiated into truth about Jesus Christ. 
And that has made a huge difference in your life. The second component, right? If you begin with hearing about him initially, then it says you were taught. And is that term that, uh, that, that means that you were trained in the, the education of. It, 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 it's like um, this is really the word that is uh, pedagogy, right? This, this is how you are educated. It's saying you have been not just trained, but really that you have been given doctrinal truth, instruction. You have been instructed in him. You're initially, right? Initially, it says that uh, you learned Christ, assuming that you have initially heard about him. But then upon conversion, you have been now steadily instructed in him. Instructed in the sphere of the things of Christ. You have been taught in him. I think this is the intention of uh, Colossians 1.28, that great proclamation of Paul the Apostle's intention with these Christians. He says, him, meaning Christ, him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom. Again, do you notice the teaching element, the, the mindfulness element of what it means that they are to grow in the things of Christ? We, him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. So this is the methodology that you have heard about him, that you have been instructed in him, so that you may one day be presented mature in the sphere, in the realm of the things of Christ. And then we get this interesting statement, right? As the truth is in Jesus. As the truth is in Jesus. Um, I have a pastor friend who is English. And then I'm, I'm trying to say it the way he said like talking about this phrase, he says something like, uh, these few words and the economy of these words, right, are all of non-proportion with their value. The economy of the words, see, I'm trying to say it, it's Paul Twist, a good pastor friend, right, excellent he speaks the Queen's English, and I, I love him, and he was talking about this passage, that verse particular, and he was saying that phrase, the economy of the words, the shortness of those few words there is all out of proportion for the richness of its theological value. As the truth is, so we have heard about him. We have been educated, instructed in him because the truth is in Jesus. Because the truth is in Jesus. A couple things that we, we should think about. One thing that I meditate on Right, as I'm looking at this particular verse, is why Jesus? And, and I don't mean like why, why Jesus versus Buddha or something weird. That's, I'm saying why, why Jesus, because this is the only time in the book of Ephesians that Jesus' name, just Jesus, is used outside of Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus the Lord or the Lord Jesus Christ, etc. You get what I'm saying? This is the only time that it's just Jesus. And I imagine, I imagine, and again, you know, you, you, you could disagree on this one because this is not infallible at all. But I imagine that Paul's thinking gravitates towards everything that has been accomplished because of Christ's incarnation. Because Jesus is his earthly name. It, it means that Yahweh saves, right? And, and he, as the God-man, has proved out what that salvation will look like. like so everything I told you about the things that we have learned in the gospel that he became a man, a real man, that he lived a perfect life, that he died a death he shouldn't have died, 
right, on our behalf, and that he was raised again, all of those, right, <clears throat> encompass his incarnational ministry to us. We're not talking generally about the second person of the Trinity. Otherwise, Paul could have said the truth is in the Son. We're not talking, right, specifically about his lordship, his kingship, and the fact that he is coming to bring the kingdom, right, the the kingdom back onto the world. That could be accomplished by saying, as the truth is in Christ, the Messiah, right? He's not talking even generally about saying that the truth is in God, because that's absolutely true as well. He is saying the truth is in Jesus to remind us particularly of that which we know in the gospel, that his incarnation, his life, his death, his resurrection, that is done to rescue us as our Savior because he is the God-man, fully man, fully God. It is that Jesus that he says, in whom we will find truth. That is the second part that you want to meditate on. What does it mean that the truth is in Jesus? I mean, Jesus has said in John 14, 6, right? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father through me. But I I think this is what he's getting at, right? The entire time, Paul has been talking about don't live as the pagans. How do you end up living like pagans or walking like pagans? Well, you do that, right? by what happens between your ears, right? You do that in the futility of your thinking. They are darkened. They're alienated because their hearts are hardened to the things of the Lord. They become callous. They've given themselves up greedily to sinfulness. And you can follow that similar pattern if you're not careful and it begins with your thinking. But you didn't learn Christ like that. No, assuming that you have heard about him initially, that you have been trained educated, right, instructed in him as you have progressed, because the truth is in Jesus, I think that statement is meant to say that there is no other truth. Or let me put it this way. There is no more significant truth than Jesus, Christ, our Savior and Lord. I think Paul's point is to say that if you are to use your minds rightly and to think like a Christian, you're supposed to reorient everything else that you think to be good and excellent or worthwhile or not. You're supposed to reorient all of your thinking around the centrality of the truth of Jesus Christ and what he has done. Who he is and what he has accomplished needs to literally become the, the, it, it, is the, it is the final, not just filter, but is the, is the primary right, initiative of the Christian's mind. He, he is the truth, not a truth amongst many. He is not a truth, and I get to dabble at some of these other things that I like. No, everything needs to be filtered to him, and through him, and for him. That, that means like whatever you're good at, I don't know what it is, you know? Um, raising roses? Do you raise roses? I don't know. Grow roses? Right? Do horticulture in your, in your garden? Right? Maybe you're good at that. Or maybe you're good at, like, feeding birds. I don't know. Whatever that you're good at. You're, you're an artist, so you draw well. Right? You, you, I don't know. You, you're a good football player. That, that, would, that would be nice. Right? Right? Like, you're good at stuff. Fantastic. But all of that now needs to be refiltered through the truth that there is a Jesus. 
And this Jesus, this real earthly historic Jesus, came and became man and died because of you. And when you start thinking everything through that, it reorients everything. How should I work? What should be my attitude towards my boss at work? I know, you're going to tell me that guy's, that guy's a lunatic, right? Welcome to our lives, you know? Like, you know, we got some crazy pastors running this show, right? They're weirdos, right? right? Whatever it is, like, however your attitude might be in terms of your workplace, in terms of your relationships, in terms of what you want to accomplish, in terms of your career grows, goals and aspirations, what experiences you want to have in this life, what experiences you want your children to have in this life, they must be filtered through the truth that there is a historical Jesus who has changed everything. Because if he hasn't changed everything then you're not in this life, this, you're not in this thinking and living formulation that is presented by Paul. You have not learned Christ. Because if you have learned Christ, according to these two verses, assuming that you've heard about him, that you've been instructed in him, as the truth is in him, then you do life entirely differently. You don't, you don't look like your coworker at the other desk. You don't look like your fellow students sitting next to you. You live and think and breathe. You, you adjust your life in a, in a way that is predicated upon the truth of who Jesus Christ is and what he has accomplished for you. It should transform everything. And the fact that it doesn't, right, suggests that we need to be more disciplined in what is happening between our ears, in how well we're meditating upon the things of the gospel, how much value we're putting into the person of Christ. Um, we're talking with, with so many individuals after our family camp, which is a wonderful time, and Doug Bookman, which is a dear friend, and uh, knows probably too much stuff. I say too much because if you guys were there, he would just go on these tangents, and he's like that with anything. He, he has such a depth of knowledge. But the things that he gives to you, it like adds, it's almost like it adds more vividness to the story of Scripture. It has more sensibility to it. It adds more emotional impact to it. I love it, right? Well, that's exactly what's supposed to happen in all of our lives. The idea that I get enough teaching, how is that possible? I don't get enough teaching, In fact, I think I am not as capable in terms of learning as I should be. It's gravely disappointing, right? I know know the gospel already. Do you? I'm talking about like how to express the concepts, but what does grace mean? How deep does that go? What does the love of God mean? How deep does that go, right? What does it mean that Christ was the God-man and not just a man, in addition to wearing clothing, right, of a man and then being God. Like, like how deep does those thoughts go? And that's the point. It's like what is initially begun must go deeper. And I think unto eternity, we will still kind of marvel at the person, the work, the majesty of our Savior Jesus Christ and the sovereign love of God the Father and sending him to rescue us. It's the knowledge of Christ. The truth is that is bottomless. And if we have learned Christ that way, if we are continuing to be instructed in him, 
if we are finding ourselves to redirect all of our thinking about what is good and excellent and true and guarding our minds and stopping those thoughts that are contrary to the truth being in Jesus and in Jesus alone and him being everything for my soul, right? If we're thinking that way, what will result? Well, the opposite of living as pagans, we'll start to put on the new self. Verses 22 to 24. It says, to put off your old self. And in the way that it's constructed here, you notice that it's to put off. It's because there's a couple infinitives that are given to us here in verse 22. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life that is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. I mean, the most obvious thing is is the, the beginning and the end, right? To put off the old self and to put on the new self that is created in the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. To put off and put on, right? It's, it's, it's simple verbs, and it expresses the idea that you take something off and then you put something else on. But there's more to it than that, Right? The way that it's stated here, it's not so much a command, but it implies that there is a follow-through because of this. The way that it's stated, as infinitives, it's trying to carry the notion that we learn Christ a certain way, and as a result of that, we've already put off some stuff. In fact, when you first became a Christian, you immediately put off certain sins, all right? Whatever those sins may be. You immediately recognize that these aren't right, and God will not be pleased with that, all right? For me, I stopped cussing like a sailor, all right? Like a really bad sailor, you know? Just because it just seemed like that's not appropriate language if, if Christ is my Savior. You know what I mean? Some things just kind of fell off right away. But then we must admit that there's an ongoing, I must continue to put off some things, some things that are still kind of hanging on to me, right? And there's the consistent, right, putting on of the things of the knowledge, right, of the wonder of the gospel of Jesus Christ, etc. And you know, I think we get that, and I think that's significant. You put off the old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt with deceitful desires. We don't have much time to get deeper than to say that recognize the deceitfulness of those corrupted desires. There is a deceitfulness in your lusts, in your desires, in your, in your pursuit of pleasure and consumption, and privilege, right, and recognition. There's, there's a deceitfulness in that. It almost tells you things like, oh, you deserve it, you need it, uh, you're an exception, you know, you get to have this, and this doesn't exclude you from the things of the Lord. It's all bogus. It's all delusion and falsehoods, and there is a deceitfulness in those corrupted, right, pagan thinking, which lead to pagan desires, unbelieving desires. Put off that old self, and then put on, verse 24, the new self, which is created, as passive, as if God is the one that has recreated us, after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And righteousness, and, and righteousness when contrasted right, to holiness, usually implies righteousness, as in I, I'm right with other people. Right? Righteous relationships. It's, it's, the, it's the horizontal. Horizontal, yes. Right? And then in contrast to the holiness, 
to the vertical. And it's saying there can be a righteousness horizontally. There can be holiness vertically because we are being recreated in the image of God as we put on the new self. But here's the part that we might overlook because you've heard the putting off and the putting on. Verse 23. And to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. See, the, the, the putting off and the putting on Aorist infinitives. You don't need to know what aorist is. It just means that they're, they're an action. They're simply an action. But here, to be renewed, it's an infinitive as well. But it's a present tense, passive, infinitive. That we need to be renewed, right? Regularly in the spirit of our minds. That our minds need to be refreshed, rethought. It goes back to what we read in Romans 12, 2 already. That we need to be in the scriptures not so that we gather together the overall data of words kind of seeping into our brains, but that we are meditatively thinking about what does this mean for me? What does this mean for the way I should think? How should this reformulate the, the God that I worship? How should this reorient the truth of who God is and what Christ has done? How does the scriptures inform me? So the regular diet of scripture is not simply that I read it as quickly as I can or as little as I can and walk away from it empty headed, but that I am drawing it in thinking so that I might be living like a Christian. This is what it means to put on the new life. Stop thinking and living as unbelievers. Start thinking and living as Christians. Let's close our time of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you. Even as we transition into a time around the Lord's table, we thank you for the scriptures and all that it would teach us about what it means to be transformed and new. And as we consider the elements now, Lord, we're reminded of the very things that we spoke about. The fact that you, Lord, have sent your son to die in our place so that we might have life in him. And so as we think about the Lord's table and the reminder that he has died for us, a true and a real death, the death that we deserve to die, Lord, would you expand our thinking so that we might cherish that above anything else that we might desire? that we might know our Savior and enjoy Him greater than anything else that we might hope for. And that we might, again, remember as a community, as a body, as a church family, that this represents your death, the death of your Son, His resurrection, so that we might not just be free from past death, but then we might be eternally free to live the life that only you could give us. We praise you for this as we prepare our hearts for Holy Communion now. In Jesus' name, amen.